this retreat now. So you contemplate the results of two weeks living in this way. Just what, what is the result of the practice, or what has happened, or what you've been doing. Not, don't be, don't think of it as a criticism, just an acknowledgement, a recognition, of this is the way it is. So you begin to connect in your mind the actions, what you do and what happens to you with uh, what your mind is like, the results, and the way things are, the way things have to be, this is the way it is. Amravati is like this, this is, uh, the retreat is like this, uh, then then uh, you're you're not there's no judgment but recognition that uh, that you are being affected by the way it is the people around you the style of life the 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 weather the different influences that affect uh, this sensitive formation don't go around thinking of yourself as a sensitive formation though. They don't want another identity to have to give up. Anjan Sumedho says, I'm a sensitive formation. You could really create problems around that. But recognition that this is a sensitive formation in, in nature. It's just the way it is. All these human, human bodies that are still living and breathing are they're, they're totally sensitive things. Not to take it personally, because if you take it personally, then you you create something, or you create problems around just the experience of sensitivity. Just like the cold weather, you can create, create a problem around the cold weather by thinking, I don't like the cold weather, I want warm weather. I wish I, I, wish I were in a warmer place. Uh, cold, I don't like. Rather than just recognition, that coldness is just this way. You create a person who doesn't, who wants something other than, than cold weather. But there's this ability also to just see that this is the way it is. Cold weather is this way. It's, uh, it's this due to the sensitive nature of this formation, having been born into a human form. Uh, we have to experience these things. They're part of our our experience of life, planetary living, is cold weather, hot weather, windy weather, rainy weather, damp, dry, droughts, cyclones, hurricanes, earthquakes, typhoons, floods. All these things are just something that are part of a, of a, a that one experiences in a lifetime in varying degrees or Wars. Human beings are, are great. Uh, love to make war. They're very they're very good at wars. So in my lifetime, just born in 1934, during a peaceful time, 
but a depression. In my, my mother said my sister and I were born right in the middle of a terrible depression, economic depression, in, in which uh, they had to depend solely on faith that they were going to be able to get enough for us to survive. Pretty hard times, but obviously we did survive. My sister and I didn't die of starvation, as you can see. Then, uh, then the, the Second World War, and after that the Korean War, and the Vietnam War, and, and there's always wars around. Now this is not justifying or kind of fatalistically accepting it, but recognizing that there always has been wars. And from the time Cain uh, uh, killed Abel, it all began with that scene. One brother killing another. Ever since then, it's been going on quite regularly. And uh, somehow, uh, we've gotten more, we can kill a lot more in one in one blow now. An atomic bomb is a fantastic invention. We not just hit somebody over the head with a rock, but you can actually blow up and kill millions of people in one go. It shows the advancement of technology and the results of uh, civilization. We should feel very happy about it, that we, we, we're not just Stone Age cave people anymore, but we can, we're nuclear age uh, beings who can destroy things in mass. So we have this intelligence, which we use quite badly, don't we? We don't use our intelligence for, uh, for very good things, usually. It's not quite selfish to get things for ourselves, or, uh, but very, not many human beings would be willing to dedicate their whole life and their ability to think and use intelligence and wisdom to, to develop the qualities uh, of a saint or a sage, or to, to try to live in a, in a beautiful and harmonious way. There is always the, the, a few of those around, but the majority of humanity is like that. Their, their, their values, their concerns about themselves and their immediate families. And that's it. It's a, it's a, it, it takes a the different, uh, to, to, to expand your consciousness, it has to kind of take a, uh, a determination to do so. And try to include as a conscious experience a, uh, the global family, all humanity. That we have to cultivate that kind of thinking because uh, generally that those thoughts uh, don't arise in the ordinary ethnic attitude, cultural attitude of any group. It's usually me and you. Or those that are those that are with us and those that are against us. Or the indigenous uh, natives and the alien forces.
we can see just here that one could create different uh, groups like the the bhikkhus versus the siddhadras or the the samanasanga against the lay community or the or the anagarikas uh, and the and the bhikkhus and so sometimes you see people doing that. I've seen anagarikas say I'm proud to be an Anagarika. I'm not one of those conceited bhikkhus. <laughs> I'm, I'm proud to be just a humble Anagarika. And not like those senior bhikkhus that are all conceited and puffed up. So we can be, be proud that we're, we're not proud. <laughs> we can create all kinds of divisions if you want. We do it, of course, because the mind is conditioned to do that. It's, uh, that's how our minds work, is to the discriminative function of thought. Thought is a discriminative function of the mind. So when you start thinking, you're always going to feel this sense of separation, such as I am, the thought I am is always going to make you feel separate from everything else. And that when I think I am, then, I, then it's me against you. And, and then whatever I identify with, there's some, something opposite. Like I am a Theravadan Buddhist monk, and then there's Mahayana Buddhism. They're there, the other sign. I am a Buddhist, and then there's the Christians. I am a man, and then there's the women. And so, the, whatever we identify with, there's always, we create the, the opposite also, as, as a contrast to, to what we believe and what we hold to as being ourselves or ours. That's how the, the conditioned mind works. It's just the, the limitation of thought. So you can recognize that, that thought is is that way. It's not nothing wrong with thinking. It's not trying to destroy thinking or take a, a stand against thinking, but to recognize thought as thought and it is a function of the mind. It is not one need one can think quite intelligently and wisely, or one can just think stupidly or just habitually going on thinking any old thing. Like habitual thought is uh, is is uh, is a curse, isn't it? When we just get caught in the in the endless inner chatter and complaining, and, uh, whining thoughts of our minds, and and that it's really awful to sit here and and have a mind that goes on and on in, in kind of inane and foolish chatter and criticisms and and uh, complaints. That's habitual thought. But thinking, say, in, with wisdom, like, say, in the reflective, using language for reflection, like the Buddhist teachings, are, are thoughts for reflection, not doctrines to grasp, not conditions that we believe in. We don't, we aren't trying to just kind of condition our mind to become Buddhists. Buddhists think like this and so we become 
people who are Buddhist by thinking uh, in Buddhist patterns. That's not the way out of suffering. But in learning to think rightly, in the right way, samasangapo, the uh, second, uh, uh, the samaditi, right understanding, samasangapo, right thought, thinking in the right way. In order to think in the right way, they, one has to know what is right and what is appropriate, the way things are, the Dhamma, the truth. Because we aren't going to think in the right way just out of the conditioning process, out of the way your mind's been conditioned to think and the, following your emotions, the way that your thoughts will just be caught up with emotional reactions, love and hate and, and uh, elation, depression and success and failure. Now with Amravati, just uh, try, try to, to, to see, put it as something in your mind and just to, to contemplate the way it is, the way it affects you. And then see what, what your mind does with that, if it starts to complain or think of better ways of, better ways of doing everything or, or maybe you don't even notice, maybe you're just caught into your own self so much you don't even know what's happening around you. Or you've never even thought of maybe reflecting on the mood of Amravati as, a, as something that affects you, a community, uh, say, like this, living together for two months, the way it is, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu sangha, the siladra sangha, the nagarikas, the lay support group, they're this way. Because the important, uh, the, the, the only important thing is developing the, the path, the Eightfold Path, the right, the right way of thinking and doing things right understanding, based on right understanding. So if you, if you spend your time uh, thinking too much about the conditioned realm and how it should be, uh, you'll, never, you'll never see what you're doing because the conditioned realm is, uh, is uh, just hopeless to try to get that perfect. Conditioned realm is, 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 is unsatisfactory in itself. So to seek contentment, satisfaction, eternal happiness, fulfillment, enlightenment from the conditioned realm uh, is, uh, is a, a, a lesson in discouragement, disillusionment, and despair. Nothing wrong with the conditioned realm. Not putting it now, I'm just pointing out this limitation that the conditioned realm cannot give us true contentment. Its nature is such that it's that way. That's just the way it is. So we don't make that demand or have that expectation, expectation anymore. We're not expecting Amravati to be, to, to content, to make me content, or to completely please me, or to be, fulfill all my expectations and, and uh, aspirations. Because when we demand that or expect that, we're going to be disappointed wherever we go. There's, things are never you know, you have moments where you think, this is exactly what I've been looking for. This is the place, Amravati, Buddhist center, ABC of England. This is 
the place I've always been looking for. This is it. And that mood lasts for a little while. And then suddenly it, it also fades out. And suddenly you see things start looking around, start noticing it, that that, uh, that there are things just not perfect here. So the discriminative mind takes over as a kind of initial inspiration. This is it. This is the best. And that being prepared for a disillusionment experience. You know, like falling in love. When you fall in love, you think, the person you fall in love with is absolutely the best. When you're in love, that even their faults are are lovable and endearing. You think you think it's hard to think a negative thought about someone you're really infatuated with. And if somebody does suggest that maybe they are far from perfect, you can feel quite indignant and uh, angry at that person for suggesting that your loved one is not what you what you're feeling but then then uh, that that falls away and then we we can go the opposite just think we just see you've really disappointed me i i once really respected you and you were absolutely the best but now i'm completely disillusioned utterly and totally shattered and completely disillusioned with you when i saw you picking your nose that was it <laughs> All my romantic illusions shattered in one brief moment. They can be that silly, can't they? We can be that silly in our uh, kind of idealism and inspirations and expectations. Ajahn Chah used to always remember when he, I was uh, very infatuated with this monastery in Thailand called Tamsang Pat. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I spent a couple of years at Wat Bapong, the main one. Then uh, we went, uh, it was a pretty wild uh, kind of out of the way place and all these kind of grottos and caves and and it was so beautiful, and I thought, this is, this is the monastery I've always been looking for. And it, then it was just wild forest, it wasn't even a monastery. I said, this is just the monastery I've been looking for. I can just, you know, I'd have these, I'd walk through and into these grottos and caves and cliffs, and I, I'd have these visions of myself sitting there in samadhi amongst these beautiful rock formations. And I'd be practicing the... And, and living there the rest of my life. I could live there the rest of my life, just living in this lovely setting, in this perpetual samadhi. And that's how the mind romanticizes, you know, seeing myself as a kind of hermit and uh, just staying in this state of bliss in this, in this lovely spot till I die. And I, uh, so, I asked permission to stay there, and he gave it, and then, and I became even more infatuated. And then one day he came up to see me from Wat Bapong, which was about 80 kilometers away. 
He said, how are you? I said, this is the best monastery. This is where I want to be. This is, this is my dream come true. And he says, be careful. Rawang. <laughs> That's a funny thing to say. Rawang. Be careful. I was trying to turn him on. I was trying to get him high on my enthusiasm, too. He, he wouldn't play the game. So then, uh, not far from that time, a few days later, I began to understand what Rawang really meant. Because uh, as high as you can get, and as inspired and that as you can get, there's also uh, the bottom. You fall that low. So that this, when you realize that, then you're you're not so eager to 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 buy into those kind of situations to, for inspiration and elation to seek that as your path. I learned from experiences like that the disillusionment, the despair that comes from great hopes, expectations, and then the then the inevitable despair and anguish that ensues that results from that. You, you realize what, what the middle way really is. Not a kind of dreary uh, 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 state of mental state where, where you don't feel anything, but it's, it's not in attaching, not seeking, not holding on to anything. That true happiness and contentment lie in our ability to understand Dhamma not to find perfection in the conditioned realm. Because even if moments where we do uh, think we have found perfect condition, perfection, uh, those conditions change, or we change, things change, and an inevitable change takes place. Where when our practice is a reflection on change, then everything, since it's changing, is, is a place of enlightenment. It's where we see the Dhamma. It's not our happiness and our contentment is, is not conditioned by a place or a person, but through right understanding and right thinking, right action, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, eightfold path. Now, when you understand Dhamma, when there's samaditi, then there's then our ability to think goes in the right. We think in the right ways, rather than thinking in the wrong ways, such as I am. Is just a, even though that's a convention uh, that we have, uh, one one doesn't really. Uh, favor that, doesn't believe in it. It doesn't have the same gravity, the same emotional pull, the same power it used to have when it was an unquestioned thought. I am, I am uh, uh, Sumato Bhikkhu, and I am this, and I've done that, and I'm like this, and, and that. And all those things are seen from a distance rather than, than from attachment. Thank <laughs> you.
Well, when the I am goes unquestioned, then we, we actually, it, it weighs on our minds. I don't feel very good. And, and that sense of I am and not feeling very good has a, has a lingering uh, strong effect on our consciousness. Say, oh, I'm not feeling very good. I don't know. I can't do this. It goes on and on. A whole lifetime for some people. Or what we like and don't like and approve of and disapprove of and my opinion and what I think and all this is, is, is given such importance in our lives that we're always being, having these kind of feelings of being oppressed and life always kind of hanging on us in a heavy way. There's no joy. There's no brightness in our lives with the condition I am as a position that we take and interpret the sensitive experiences from. I was talking to uh, Venerable Kitty Thorough this evening and down at Chitterst on the telephone and he's had this bad flu. So I said, I, I didn't realize he had, was, still had it, but he I said, how are you? The usual greeting, how are you? And uh, he, he said, well, physically not very well, but mentally very well. And so he's, and he sounded very happy actually, uh, as his voice was coming across the telephone, the, the kind of uplifted, joyous voice, and then go into these paroxysms of horrendous coughing. And he'd be going, oh, <laughs> So he, he was saying about this retreat now to Chitters, how much he's enjoying it and how much he's learned uh, uh, that the actual feelings of physical enervation and weakness and all that is really uh, doesn't block off his joy. It's no obstacle to his understanding of Dhamma or his joyful experience of giving and teaching and being with a community that's practicing. That's, uh, that's the, the, and yet, obviously, physically, he must be very uncomfortable and a lot, of, a lot of discomfort and unpleasantness in any of the fevers, flu is a pretty, can be a, or those viruses are pretty nasty uh, physical experiences. Now, if his happiness depended on feeling healthy and feeling vigorous and, and all that, then he would, he would be pretty miserable because the happiness, uh, you can't be happy if, you, if, you've got the, uh, if you've got these viruses, flu and all that. You can, if your happiness depends on being healthy, and then, then you can't be happy. But if your happiness is not dependent upon physical health and, and uh, physical comfort and things being nice and everything going well, and well then even in the midst of uh, most unpleasant uh, conditions, one can still be a joyous being, an enlightened, contented being in the midst of the inferno. There's one Mahayana image I used to like called a, a lotus 
blooming in the midst of the inferno is indestructible. What does that mean? A lotus that blooms in the midst of the inferno is indestructible. I, I get this image seeing this lotus in this kind of massive ball of fire, inferno, and yet completely untouched, undisturbed by this uh, raging fire of desire and conditionality. And that's what, say, the, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma is, isn't it? It's that, that unshakability of the of the mind, that perfect balance where there is there is certainly uh, a total awareness and sensitivity and consciousness, all these things are operating as usual. But there's no longer delusion, fear and desire which which kill us, which destroy us. As soon as you you give in to fear and desire, then you're right in burn, being burned in the fire, the inferno. So that's why suffering is, is the key to, to the Buddhist teaching, suffering and the end of suffering. Dukkha, as the first noble truth. Naroda, as the third noble truth. Cessation of suffering. And then the Eightfold Path is the way of non-suffering. It's how to live within the human form, in the, with all its senses operating, uh, and with all that can possibly happen in a human, to a human being in a lifetime, but not, not suffering from it. Now what is that? How can we... Because we, we recognize that... that uh, I mean, on the level of our conditioned mind, we can anticipate and dread a lot of possible misery that we realize is not just being kind of negative, but we're all going to have to experience a lot of unpleasantness in a lifetime. We have to get old. It's not nice, pleasant, physical, wonderful experience to get physically old. It isn't kind of just like, not like youth, where if you're youthful and healthy, there's a kind of vigor and resilience and, and pleasurable feelings from, from a youthful, uh, youthful body. Or, uh, then there's the, the watching uh, our loved ones die away. We have to watch our parents go and and die and, and things like this. So this is just a part of a human experience, human life. To experience uh, wars. Fortunately here in, in Britain over the past 40 years uh, or so, we, uh, most of you who were born after the Second World War haven't had to experience a war, uh, much of, all of that at least not in the country itself. But anyone who was, was born before the war has a very strong, powerful memories of, of uh, war. 
And we recognize that that possibility now in the Gulf, Gulf War. It's now a war, isn't it? So that this is also within our possibility of experiencing the all that that comes from all the, the, the fighting and the terrorism and the horrors that could ensue from the Gulf War. But that's still not an obstacle to enlightenment and to happiness, contentment, because that's what you realize within yourself. You're not, you're not, you'll not find, you can, a lot of people are pretty miserable in Britain even when there's no war. There's a lot of unhappy, miserable, suicidal, alcoholic, drug addicted, uh, depressed, neurotic, uh, totally despairing creatures in, in such pleasant countries as Britain, or such a kind of affluent countries, the Western European countries, the United States, so forth. These have not produced a kind of people who are just happy all the time. They make endless problems, don't they? The higher your standard of living, the more problems you make. When you're starving, you're glad to get a, a crust of bread. When you're rich, then you you, you get very upset if the if the uh, souffle falls. If the meringue doesn't peak. <laughs> mm. Can ruin your day. Commit kill yourself over some people would. <laughs> now in a retreat and in a monastic life, we consider that the real challenge and adventure is an inner one. You know, even though on one level it looks, you know, pretty, uh, you know, like, like one is just sitting here, uh, like a, trying to, to emulate the Buddha Rupa, Yet there's this, uh, there is uh, uh, a lot one has to learn to to deal with. There's an inner struggling going on. We have to struggle. We have to to really uh, work with our mind to get to realize truth. We're not here just to get uh, tranquilized and, and, and uh, through, uh, say, sitting still for a long period of time. But there's a, there's a, say, in our life there is a continuous challenge of, of mindfulness, isn't it? To be mindful in whatever we're doing. To keep bringing our attention to the way it is and to to, and when, and sometimes we don't want to, we want to get, we want to be deluded a lot of the time. No, you would love to sit here in some kind of blissful state of delusion. And people love to be deluded. And uh, so it's, it's, it's not that delusion is, is necessarily such an unpleasant thing in itself, but the result of attachment to delusion always is despair. 
because you can't keep it. You can't keep a delusion, even, uh, even a, a most pleasant and, and uh, lovely delusion that one might be able to create is still impermanent. Tranquility is impermanent. Uh, as you can see, just sitting uh, for a long period of time, inevitably we have to give in to the needs of a, of a physical body, to its pain or its functions and pressures. That's just the way it is. But that, those are not obstacles to enlightenment, or that needn't be any form of suffering, unless we are determined to make it into some, some negative thing, something we don't want, something that interferes with our practice, something that gets in the way. In community life, the challenge is really to learn uh, to, to, uh, to wear out one's ego, because community life brings up our egos more than anything else. And then our conceit and our pride, living with other people, we're always, uh, are, are, we're always being challenged. Our egos are, are being frustrated by the people around us. And that can you just live in a community and like everybody all the time? And just feel this ongoing, unmitigated metta flowing out of you every moment of the day? Or do you sometimes just cannot stand looking at some people? And, seeing the same faces, and no matter what they do, it's still irritating. And, uh, and then we have our opinions and views, how we think things should be done, or what's wrong with somebody, or, or we don't like the way somebody is conducting themselves. Somebody is being obstreperous or difficult. People make demands on us, or have expectations of us, or mistreat us, or, or whatever. And these, these, are the, these are possibilities within a, within a community life. So to be content within community life, don't look for uh, relationships with others, or for, don't look around for an ideal community, because you won't find one. Uh, but use where you are, like here, use this place for reflection on what, what comes up, the I am's and the, the anger and, and irritations, frustrations and, and uh, infatuations and expectations, all the positive or negative reactions one has to the beings around one, are to be witnessed and observed as what arises ceases. This is what we, this is, these are what we generally regard as ourselves. My feelings <coughs> and my views and opinions about myself and the rest of you. Very much the ego in operation. So we have to know the ego. We're not trying to get rid of it because that's another egotistical uh, desire, isn't it? I want, I want to be somebody who doesn't have, that isn't egotistical is, uh, is another kind of ego trip. So we're not, we're not annihilating or destroying ego, but recognizing it. So we, we know it for what it is. It has, uh, the more we study and investigate and acknowledge it, then the less possible chance we have to be deluded by it 
when conditions change or whatever, well, the vipaka kama, resultant kama happens to us, we can see it as dhamma rather than react to it from the conditioned ego. Because we know the conditioned ego. We know it in its aspects, in its subtleties, in its coarseness. We study it as a condition that arises and ceases. It's impermanent. It's not self. It's not, it's not, no longer, is there any possibility for it to delude us? And that takes mindfulness, sati, and panya, wisdom, sampanchanya, clear comprehension of the way it is. Venerable Amra once described monastic life, he says it's like one of those uh, rock polishing machines where you throw in all these kind of coarse, rough pebbles, and you, you switch on the, the rock polishing machine, and they all go around rubbing up against each other until they wear away all the rough edges and they come out these beautiful shiny pebbles. <laughs> Lovely little shiny pebbles with beautiful colors in them. Agates and amethysts and rubies and diamonds and all that. Lovely uh, gems and translucent stones or but when we're thrown in at first we're all just kind of coarse rough not very impressive looking little stones so community life does have that and does, it, it is it is hard going I, sometimes to live in a community because you're, you're being, you're, there's always things happening to you, and there's, your, your buttons are being pressed, and you're, you're always being, things are, are frustrating you, and you, you have these reactions to people and different types and things that happen. So that, that this, we, we, you know, many, many of us have tried to avoid community life because of it. One thing I was, very keen upon this monastery Tamsangpat because I, I could live pretty much alone, which I liked, living alone, because I found living in a monastery with a lot of other monks a very irritating experience. But due to the wisdom of my venerable teacher, he, he wouldn't, wouldn't let me get away with it. He kept bringing me into these places where I, where they kept throwing me back into the to the rock polishing machine. <laughs> now I'm forever grateful to him. I really appreciate that. That I didn't always at the time. I used to be quite angry with him. Thinking he's, you know, doubting and questioning. I don't think he knows what he's doing. In the in the suttas. It said the bhikkhus always went off to the forest and practiced meditation. So you, you have these ideals. It's just like Tamsangpeta, this, this huge uh, kind of grotto cave, they, and the, they built this kuti in it with a jongrom path. In this in kind of, uh, they're not, they weren't real caves, they were more like ledges, overhanging ledges and 
and it was quite, they had these bats in it. I quite like bats in the, in this uh, Jongrom path and the little kuti, and then it had its own, and it was quite difficult to get to, and, and uh, with all these kind of thick vines around it, and it was, I kept seeing myself in these kind of, I kept thinking of, if, if I would make a, 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 a movie, you know, I could see a kind of like somebody like this uh, this place. That's where it's so much preferable to monks. <laughs> and then as I was sitting in this, uh, and then. Uh, at this time, you see, there, the it became increasingly more well known because it was quite a beautiful spot in a not a terribly beautiful uh, province. Ubon province wasn't noted for its kind of great beauty and uh, tourist spot. So any place that had any beauty at all was was usually uh, made a lot of. So Tumthang that became quite a famous place. And of course, it attracted people for you know as tourists. So the villagers started when they heard there was a proper on a Western monk living at this place, and a lot of village people started coming. And they'd find because they, these village people are pretty clever about finding uh, monks, and 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 they're not afraid to go on these these hidden paths and that. So. So even though I were trying to very, you know, disguise the, the way, inevitably, they'd be sitting there, the villagers would come traipsing through. Really good practice, because I would feel so angry, so like I'd been, been uh, invaded, because I wanted to be left alone with the bats and my, my, my poetic mind and uh, sitting there and uh, enjoying this and not having to relate, not having to be irritated or frustrated, not having to perform, not having to try to understand what people are saying because I couldn't understand Thai that well. So I'd, forget, I'd feel very, very uh, irritated and put off by that. But in the, uh, but then after a while, it became apparent that uh, that that wasn't I wasn't going to as long as my practice was based on me trying to to uh, control a situation and, and make it into an ideal. And I was I was just setting myself up for misery because it seems in my life as a monk that every time I've selfishly tried to control. A situation, and uh, for my own benefit and convenience, it, something always comes. The backlash is is quite strong. So eventually, you learn just through being kind of beaten by life and being rubbed so many times in the in the in the uh, rock polishing machine that you do if you if you have a some intelligence, you do learn from life. Or you can't, anyway. 
Sometimes I wonder about something. <laughs> One thing is not to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. This is why we reflect on the, we, we learn from our, our suffering and from the mistakes and the problems we create. And the, so, otherwise you never learn. And I've seen some, some monks and nuns just keep repeating the same mistakes over and over. They never seem to learn. And you keep thinking that surely they're going to learn, but they don't. But then one has to accept that too. Some people just aren't going to learn. Because they don't reflect. They don't contemplate the results. They just get stuck. Uh, and uh, and they, they want magic. Or they want security. Or they want, they want something. They, but they don't see that they still want something. So that it's really, it's, it's, uh, it's, as far as making mistakes, and specifically, a part of our human experience to to make a mess of everything or to to uh, make mistakes, but learn from it. And to learn not to make it into an ego thing of uh, a sense of guilt or or uh, or take it in a, in a personal way, but recognize that life is like this that our human state is, is the experience of suffering, so we learn through suffering. We, so we contemplate suffering. We, we examine, investigate suffering. And then we realize non-suffering. Through understanding suffering, we realize non-suffering. So they contemplate and, and say just what the result of your practice. Remember again, I remind you, not not judge it. There's a difference between judging on a, on a from the ego, and just uh, reflecting on on this is the this because of this, then this is the result. I've been especially pointing to the. The compulsive tendency, this sense of having to do something. Really look at that, that, that feeling that I am somebody who must do something. Try to, to really notice that uh, and, and so that it no longer deludes you. You're no longer practicing from, a, from that delusion. So that, because practice meditation has, can be very compulsive, and and the result of compulsive meditation practice, the result of doing it as a kind of compulsive thing, and I must do this, is always a feeling of guilt or dis dissatisfaction. Some some negative result comes from from compulsive meditation. Whenever I, whenever I sit, do the sitting practice, 
with an attitude of I'm, I'm going, I'm go, I must do this to get something, the, the result I've found has always been some form of kind of despair or, or hopelessness. So I find, you know, when I just lay on an all-night sitting, if you uh, if you sit on an all-night sitting from this kind of compulsive attitude, it's totally miserable experience. I've got to sit up all night. I've got to make myself sit up all night. Uh, if you start an all-night sitting with that as your uh, kind of cause, and you don't recognize it for what it is, you're going to have a miserable night. You will yourself into sitting there, just kind of, you know, using your will to stay. But uh, it's, it's, it's the whole effort is based on a delusion. So, of course, the result is quite miserable feeling. Boredom and restlessness and trying to get rid of them and trying to practice. And eventually... It, as the night wears on, you just can't, you lose your ability to control and force, and you just kind of fall over and you know, sitting there. But you're still hanging in, because you're not going to give up. Not going to give up. By three in the morning, you're, you're totally wretched. Because it's based on a delusion. You, 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 you think you're somebody who must sit up all night and must be loyal and must not give in to weakness and and that you have to do this and that try to try to look at that and that feeling of that you must do this this compulsive feeling Because uh, the all night thing can be quite quite a pleasant experience if you're not being compulsive about it. Enjoy it. See, if you if you know if you have the right attitude towards it, it's quite a pleasant, enjoyable experience. But if you have a lot of views about it and memories of miserable all night sittings or or views about yourself and what you should do and and your obligations and duties and and all that then you'll you set yourself up with all the conditions to be miserable for the whole night whole night city and you haven't even seen it maybe your maybe your uh, your resolutions are quite noble you know i'm going to do this i have to do this. This is what a good monk or nun should be able to do. And I should be able to take it. And, uh, it all sounds, you know, quite uh, quite ennobling to, to think of yourself as someone who's willing to, to sit up all night out of a sense of duty. But it's to see that as an object is the, is the, is the way out of suffering. To not believe in the uh, in that in that as oneself, so eventually, if you keep keep looking and investigating that 
that compulsiveness, the sense of I must, I should, I've got to, I shouldn't. And, and uh, as you, in, in your practice of meditation or whatever you're doing, if you identify that and know it for what it is, you, you can, you, you, you don't have to follow it. You don't have to uh, be attached to it. You let it go, let it drop. And then you find that that online sittings are what they are. That they are, one is uh, is uh, one is aware of what's happening, and one can can um, reflect and learn the Dhamma from these experiences. But you can't if you're always caught in that basic delusion. I'm somebody who must do something in order to become something else in the future. So I offer this for your reflections.